are in uh, Acts chapter 21. Now, you're probably going to want to have your Bible open, uh, as well as the map that's on the second page, ready at hand. Uh, <clears throat> you may notice that my header has us doing through verse 26. Well, that ain't going to happen. Because um, when I started getting into this, I realized... Um, I had far more material than I would be able to shoehorn into our time. So we will end at verse 16, which is all I handed you. I actually have a full second page I had printed out and prepared for this morning, and I threw it away because we're going we're gonna to pick up in verse 17 next week. Now, when you come to this particular passage of Acts, it was very interesting. Uh, a couple different preachers, I heard their... Uh, preliminary remarks on these verses and they said this is a really hard passage to preach because it's a travel log and not a whole lot is going on and I thought hmm he's right for a Sunday sermon this is not as um, doesn't have as much fodder that you would typically see uh, and yet there's plenty here, which we will discover. But at f the first time you read this passage, you're just going to go, well, we went from here, and then we went to here, and then we went to here, and then we went to here, and we stayed here for a few days, and then we went to here, and oh, by the way, the island is over there. And it's as if Luke was just keeping a journal of where they went, kind of like you were on a cruise, and you just wrote down which port you were at every night and didn't really talk about what you did during the day. And yet, in our class, because this is a little more uh, exploratory, we can stop and look at these ports and why they're important. Why would they be along this road and this journey? One of my challenges for this class is finding the right map to show you each week. The one that I have here is a good one, but doesn't quite explain this particular journey in the detail that I wished. Um, and I'll point out why. The problem is the other map that I found left out a different section. So I have Put it this way, if I could print things in color and not make it cost a billion dollars, you'd get better maps because black and white ones typically are not as uh, fleshed out. This is a, intentionally created as a black and white uh, map. Anyway, so I pre-apologize for my map search. You have no idea how many maps I look at. <laughs> Everyone's like, okay, that one doesn't work. Oh, that one doesn't work. Oh, that one spelled the name wrong. Oh, that one missed this city. Anyway, first, chapter 21, verse 1. First question, since it's been two weeks since I taught, where did we leave the story in chapter 20? What city were they in? Anybody remember chapter 20? Miletus. Miletus, yep. There, Miletus, you can see that on your map, right dead center in the middle. Um, he had called the elders from Ephesus, about 60 miles away, 50 miles away, to come to Miletus to talk with him. He preached to them, which we have the text 
or at least the abridgment of what he said to them in chapter 20, and then a very emotional goodbye. Uh, Verse 36 of chapter 20, And when he said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all, because the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. So he gets on the boat with his uh, retinue, whoever was with him. Verse 21, verse 1 of chapter 21. When they departed from them, they set sail. We came by a straight course to Kos. And you look at your map and you go, it's not there. Because I don't know why. They have the island of Patmos, which wasn't in last time's map, but Kos was. But that other map didn't keep the rest of this journey going. Kos is the island right under the S of Patmos. See that kind of long thing that looks a little bit strange? Be directly under the dot for Miletus, right under the, uh, the S of Patmos, that is the island of Kos. And you can see they kind of went between it and a little isthmus that's poking out of that part of Turkey. Kos is 50 miles away from Miletus, so it took them probably part of the day to get there, and then they stopped. Now, Kos is known as the birthplace of Hippocrates, the father of modern medicine. Modern. Father of ancient medicine. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What's not as well known is that Emperor Claudius, in 53 AD, So within 10 years of this event, Emperor Claudius had declared this to be a free city. No longer a colony, no longer under, you know, all the other governorship elements of Rome, but was a free city. And why? Because his personal doctor was from there. And if you think about Hippocrates, being born there, developing his medicinal uh, efforts, that then translates up through the centuries and there was obviously, who knows, maybe there was a medical school there. Um, You know, instead of Tucson having the only medical school, now ASU has one. And so there was a competitor uh, in that area, but so you have some history in that area. The next day, it even says, and the next day to Rhodes. You can find Rhodes on your map. Very big island, about 500 square miles, uh, fairly well known. So what is the historical import of the island of Rhodes? In history, what's it, what was it known for? Famous. The Colossus. The Colossus of Rhodes, which is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. If you've ever looked into it, which I did, so now I have the details, so you can know. (laughs) Yes, this statue was 107 feet high and stood at the entrance to the port. 107 feet. So that's 10 stories in an era of no skyscrapers. 
I mean, for us, a 10-story building, well, that's the utility building downtown. I mean, who cares? Back then, you didn't have things that were that tall that were a sculpture. Even their buildings or their towers weren't that big. So this thing stood at the entrance to the port. If you go to Rhodes today, the port is called the... Um, uh, I'm going to forget the word. I'm not going to call it the port, but the Sea of St. Paul. They're saying this is where he entered the, the, air, the, the, the town of Rhodes. Now, it was built in 280 BC, a long time ago. It was not there when Paul visited, which is why it's not mentioned in this passage. You would think if there was this big statue, they would make some comment about this grand secular pagan idol because it fell down in 224 BC. It only lasted about 55 years, 56 years. A big earthquake happened and it fell over. It's, it fell into the bottom of the sea. And they, I, I think I have it right, they have found pieces of it at the bottom of that, but they've never dredged it up and tried to recreate it. But it is kind of interesting that here is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world of Rhodes, not mentioned in scripture, but there is another one of the seven wonders of the ancient world that is mentioned in scripture. Anybody know what that is? Yes, the temple of Artemis or Artemis, in what city? Ephesus. So we have indication of a temple that was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world that Paul saw. He was preaching against the pagans uh, in Ephesus and their worship of Artemis. So because I can, and I'm the teacher, and you have to follow my rules, what are the other five wonders of the ancient world? Do not Google it while I'm sitting here. Because <laughs> I had to Google it so I could get the answers right. Anybody? Well, the Lighthouse of Alexandria. The Lighthouse of Alexandria. Okay, that's three. Hanging Gardens of Babylon. Hanging Gardens of Babylon, that's four. The library Nope, no library. You're thinking of Library of Alexandria, but it wasn't one of the seven wonders. Was it pyramids? Hmm? The pyramids? The pyramids. Pyramids of in Giza, Egypt. Uh, let's see, what have we forgotten? Yep, there's two others. A statue of, of Zeus in Olympia. And the seventh one, which no one ever remembers, and I couldn't think of it. I had to search for it. Oh, you're way too smart, Carl. The mausoleum where? Oh, come on. Don't tease us all. <laughs> it's the mausoleum of Hilicarnassus, which is why it rolls right off your tongue. <laughs> and Hilicarnassus is between Miletus and that spot right below it when you see if you were to just take a road and go south, you will find that particular uh, place called Hill, Hill, Hala, H-A-L-I, 
Carnassus. And that mausoleum was the la longest lasting of them all. It was not destroyed until 1200 AD by an earthquake. And that mausoleum, you know, burial place, the reason it was so well known, it had statues all around its roof and another hundred of them inside. So it was just this wonder of ancient art. So here we have, you know, this one day trip, you know, the, the, I could just see the, uh, the cruise director on the boat going, well, there lies the Colossus, can't see it, but it was there. Maybe, maybe the feet were still there, who knows? But they spend a whopping day in Rhodes. Now, you're starting to see a pattern in travel. Even this map does illustrate it. Those little dots, how long are each one of those ports from each other? A day's trip max? Remember when I was talking about this the last time, I said typically the Romans, particularly the Romans, uh, sometimes the Greeks, did not really like the open sea. Navigating the open sea was treacherous. Their boats weren't exactly robust. And most times when you're going from place to place, you're in a boat that would probably be about as big as this room, maybe in width. So you've got 20, 30 people on that boat, and that's it. So you hug the shore enough to put up a sail, enough to keep away from the, you know, the tidals, the tidal and eddies and the, the rocks and whatnot, and they're moving around. So they would go from place to place, port to port. Who knows? Maybe that's how they transmitted their mail. Or some of their smaller goods would go from this port to that port and back and forth. A lot of that going along and then they get from Rhodes to Patera, which we see, another day trip, 65 miles away. I decided to look up Patera. I don't normally care, but it is mentioned in scripture, so I start digging around. In the war that happened after the assassination of Julius Caesar, Brutus, conquered Patera by defeating Mark Antony. And if you look at that strategically from a maritime perspective, that is a really crucial spot. You could actually blockade movement from east over to the west if you controlled Patera. It was a really crucial piece. Historically, St. Nicholas was born here. No, not the Santa Claus, but the actual St. Nicholas, who 30 years later was at the Council of Nicaea in 300 AD. Archaeologists have found in Patera the base of a lighthouse that has inscriptions in it that date that lighthouse to the time of Paul. They know who was in charge at that time, and they are able to trace it and go, this lighthouse was there when Paul 
probably pulled into port that evening. Isn't that wonderfully... Now go wow your friends with trivia about the Bible. Now, given what I just said about the size of the boat, the next part of the journey is very different, isn't it? They probably got on a different ship. Because there's no way a tiny little boat would go from Patera to Tyre. Because that is a five-day journey if you don't stop. And according to Scripture, they did not stop. There are, well, there's the example in Acts 27 that when Paul was on his way to Rome, the shipwreck story, uh, let's see if I can even find the, the verse. I'm probably not going to find it because I didn't write down the verse. I just wrote down the chapter. Uh, that there were 276 people on that boat with Paul. That's not a small vessel. That is going to be a much larger vessel that would carry a lot of cargo. Large enough that they might even have been transporting animals on it. If you think about it, you could have a section that could have sheep, goats, maybe even a horse or two. Who knows? This is, there's 276 people on this boat. Imagine, we've got a room of 20 people. Multiply that by 10, add a crew, add the cargo, add the food for all of us, add the water for all of us, because they can't dip into the Mediterranean Sea to get their drinking water, and be on that boat for five straight days. That's a journey. But as a journey that was specifically done so that Paul was trying to get to Jerusalem in time for what? Hmm? Pentecost. He, yeah, yeah, he celebrated Passover up in uh, Macedonia and he need, wanted to be in Jerusalem in time for Pentecost. So he has about three weeks to get there based on our chronology and time frame from Patera. So he's basically taking a full week in his travel plans to get to Tyre. Now let's read a little bit uh, where it says, And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, he went aboard and set sail. And when we came in sight of Cyprus, this is verse 3, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. The specificity of that language is fascinating to me. Why did Luke put this in here? He wanted to say they didn't stop. So imagine you're in this boat and you're out in the middle of the ocean, you're somewhere between Patera and uh, Cyprus, and then suddenly over the horizon, land! I can see land! And someone says, let's stop there. I need a bathroom break. Um, no, this is a direct flight. You know, you, you're, you're, getting, you're not going to be stopping in Dallas and uh, Denver and Chicago and Columbus and Atlanta on your way to St. Petersburg because you picked the wrong airline. 
you are just a direct flight. You have to be on this boat for the entire time. <clears throat> but then saying we saw it on the left. Normal people, is it normal people? That's the wrong way to phrase it. Normal travelers, when they go to Cyprus, they land on the northern side of the island. Yes, there's a port that's mentioned here on this map, but it was very rarely used. They would normally go on the northern side because that's where the deep harbors were. The shallow harbors were on the south side. A large ship like this probably could not pull into the port. They, it just You can't stop there. If you're going to stop there, you're going to have to anchor way out and then take little boats into the normal thing. And wait a minute, didn't Paul visit Cyprus on his first missionary journey? He spent time there. There was a church there. It was established. He and Barnabas established a church in Cyprus. Yet, he didn't buy a ticket that included stopping off at Cyprus for any period of time. So, he had been in Cyprus 14 years earlier, if you want your chronology uh, accurate. That's in Acts 13. Alright. They get to Tyre. Tyre is the capital city of Phoenicia. Make sure you write that down and make, the, make that indication because there are references in the New Testament to Phoenicia, but not as many to Tyre. It's kind of the same thing, you know, in their minds. Um, I was trying to think of an example. Uh, is there a town on the east coast that when you say that town, you think of the entire state? New York. New York, Boston. You don't think, oh, I'm going to Massachusetts. No, I'm going to Boston. You may not actually be going to Boston, but you're kind of going in the general area because it kind of identifies the entire state, even though it's on this far edge. There's all the rest of it. You mentioned New York. Um, I once had to go to, um, it was Bellingham, New York, for a conference. This is back in the days of travel agents. The travel agent booked me to Birmingham, <laughs> Alabama. <laughs> I got home, I'm looking at the ticket and I'm going, wait, that's not the right state. Uh, this isn't good. So I go back, oh my goodness, that poor travel agent, she had to eat the ticket. Because mm. she couldn't change it, she had bought unchangeable tickets. And I went, you sent me the wrong, not only the wrong city, but the wrong state because um, of the similarity. Because she heard Birmingham and I, when I said Bellingham. But when I got there to the right state, I was astounded how green it was. I was expecting New York City with the tall skyscrapers. It was just this beautiful, gorgeous forests and everything else. Very different part of the state, but in my mind, I had indicated it. That's your thing about Tyre. When you think of Phoenicia, you really are thinking about Tyre. They landed at Tyre to unload its cargo. And what does Paul do? Because they need to stay there for seven days. 
And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. Now, wait a minute. It's not going to take seven days to unload a boat. It's just not. You can unload a boat if you're aggressive in a few hours. It's not that big. This isn't a cargo container where you need cranes. Why do you think he stayed there for seven days? That's a full week. And he's got a schedule to keep. And this is all we have. This and the balance of the paragraph. Well, seven days is a long time. Why seven days? I don't have the answer. I'm waiting for you guys to tell me. <laughs> what do you think? Why would he stay there for seven days? That's a, that is a long time. I, I couldn't they actually be, they could be procuring other things to put on the cargo ship. Possibly. It doesn't leave for another seven days. <laughs> That's very true. Very possible. Yeah. This could uh, be uh, the, the tides. Uh, they have to unload things. There's all these people, so they have to take their luggage off, and then uh, other people, maybe there's still openings, and uh, probably common. You, you don't have a list of 200 people, you know, probably right. they're out there selling spots to come onto the ship. And so it's very fluid. It's just yeah, a lot and of possibly he's switching ships again, too. So he's, I mean, he wouldn't be taking the big, huge cargo ship to the next port, because the next port's only 20 miles away. Yeah. yeah, to your point, it's only 20 miles away, um, and he had a specific date deadline. He stayed because he could. Yeah, he had the time. He had the time to enjoy some fellowship with people that he didn't know when, mm -hmm. if he was, mm -hmm. yeah, as we see. Now, it really gets interesting when you start digging into what's happening here in this particular town because it's the first mention of Christians in Tyre in the New Testament. We know that this, the people during right after Stephen, we know they went to Phoenicia and I'll get to that in a minute. But we had never had any indication that there was a church that had been born here. Paul is always looking to disciple wherever he goes. He probably said, went to the synagogue and they finds out that there's a Christian group down the street and he goes, what happens in seven full days of ministering to people? One guy put it this way. One, may, one week may not, may not be long for some people, but friendships can be made in seven days. Bonds can be formed in seven days. Saints can be encouraged and equipped in seven days. Ministry can be done in seven days. Fellowship can thrive in seven days. The Lord created the heaven and the earth in one week, for goodness sake. Paul built close ties in seven days, and the Lord blessed his servants and his saints in those seven days. <coughs> That church was probably forever changed in those seven days. But we don't have a lot of detail other than what we have in this text, which almost 
change, well it doesn't almost, it changes from a tra travelogue to a dialogue. Let's look what happens. And through the Spirit, they, meaning the disciples, kept telling me, because the Greek is in the per imperfect tense, they kept telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And when our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, probably meaning the entire church, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city and knelt down on the beach in front of everyone and prayed and said farewell to one another. And then we went on board the ship and they returned home. What a fascinating picture. You have Paul coming to this town probably unannounced. It's not like they send runners ahead. They couldn't have gotten that far ahead. And they knew who he was. He ministered to them to the point that they were saying, look, please don't go to Jerusalem. Now, why would they say that? Why would they say don't go to Jerusalem? If it's in the spirit, then they know he's going to die. They know this is it's a dangerous place right now for him. This isn't the first time Paul's been warned. He even talked about the warning in chapter 20 when he was over in Miletus, saying, I'm, I'm going ahead and I may never see you ever again. These folks are much closer to Jerusalem. They're getting the regular reports and they know what Christianity and the faith is doing and the, the turmoil that's happening in that region and they plead with him, don't, don't go to Jerusalem. But he's, you know, he's going to keep going. And they accompany him until they were outside the city. I just love the picture of them kneeling down on the beach. Again, a very specific statement, drawing a vivid picture in just a few words. Now imagine... Imagine the scene in your head right now. Busy port. There's lots of boats along the beach. Along There's some docks. There's Some have been pulled up right onto the beach itself. And this group, who knows how many, 20, 30, 40, 50 people are coming down to say goodbye. They're all hugging. And then they all kneel. And you imagine the other dock workers are going, well, those religious people. You know, and they're witnessing, testifying to the city in this manner. So there's a wonderful little story that I came across. Five young college students were spending a Sunday in London and they wanted to hear the famed Charles Spurgeon preach. So they're standing outside the church waiting for the doors to open and they were greeted by a man who said, Gentlemen, let me show you around. Would you like to see the heating plant of this building? They were not particularly interested because it was a hot summer day in July. <laughs> but they didn't want to offend the stranger, so they consented. And the young men were led down a stairway 
and a door was quietly opened and the guide whispered, this is our heating plant. And the students saw 700 people in one room bowed in prayer, seeking a blessing for the service that was about to begin in the auditorium above. And softly closing the door, the gentleman then introduced himself and he was Charles Spurgeon. I thought of that and I thought, well, our church doesn't have a basement. <laughs> but should it? <laughs> I mean, should there There's be a... There's a little a basement over at the village hall where they have, we used to have all the heating equipment. It's empty now. It's empty now. It you could, we could create not, one. It is not empty now. I can guarantee you. <laughs> <laughs> it's a storage area. But imagine a church that had 700 people there before the doors opened, praying for that service. No wonder that church had such an impact in the city of London. And here you have people praying in front of a, a, a secular world to send off one of their own. Well, story goes on. When they finished the voyage from Tyre, they arrived at Ptolemais. Ptolemais is a Roman colony that was um, declared a special colony by Emperor Claudius and populated it with Roman veterans of the various wars. Now the town had been there for a long time, but he established it as a Roman colony in the 50s AD. So it's only been established in this way for a few years. In the Old Testament, it is known as the city of Akko, A-C-C-O, which you can find in Judges chapter 1. But they arrive in this tiny little t the town, another seaport, and we greeted the brothers, meaning there's another church there. We can't ignore the fact that the church has grown everywhere. Paul didn't necessarily set up his itinerary just to go to the existing churches he knew about. He goes, he then looks, and there's a church. He greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. So we don't know what's going on, but the next day we departed and came to Caesarea Maritime. It doesn't have the second name here because there's another Caesarea, isn't there? Caesarea what? Philippi, which is where? Up near the Sea of Galilee. So you have different Caesareas and we have to remember if you take the EA off of it, it spells Caesar. So these are towns built in honor of Caesar, Caesarea. Caesarea, Herod built this town. Long time ago, I think it was Herod the Great actually created Caesarea Maritime. It's about a 40 mile journey from Ptolemais. And we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist. Okay, we gotta stop here. Philip the Evangelist, who? is Philip the Evangelist. 
This is the only person in the entire New Testament who is titled the evangelist. No one else is called that. No one. Now Paul did tell Timothy to do the work of an evangelist, but he didn't call Timothy the evangelist. But Philip is called Philip the evangelist. Okay. In Ephesians chapter 4, the word evangelist is one of the uh, offices, I guess you could say, or one of the services for the church. So you have uh, all you know, preachers, you have evangelists. There's a nice list there. So turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6, and you're going to find a little bit about Philip. Acts chapter 6, verse 5. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, the guy who was martyred later. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and who? Philip. And Prochnerus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch, and they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on him. These seven were chosen, as you see up in verse 3, pick out among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, to serve in the body to free the apostles from having to do work at the local level so they could be out preaching and teaching on the highways and byways. Now there is a debate in scholastic service circles if the Philip the Evangelist is also Philip the Apostle. Same name. There's no last name. We don't have his social security number so we can't check his ID. Uh, Lisa and I talked about this last night because I said, okay, is it the same guy? Or is it a different one? I land on the side that it's a different Philip because of this verse. That he's chosen among the seven to serve separate from the apostles. And if there's a Philip in the apostles and the Philip in the special group, that would be two different people. That would make sense. Um, as Lisa put it, it would be nice if it was the same guy. It would be kind of kind of cool. But based on just that, I don't think it's the same one. Then you go to chapter 8 of Acts to verse 5. Let's just start with verse 4. Now, Stephen has just been stoned. Saul, soon to be called Paul, Saul is ravaging the church. Verse 4 of chapter 8 says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, and there was much joy in that city. He went to Samaria. 
the unclean, the, the half-breeds, Philip went to a part of the country that no good upstanding Jew would go to other than Jesus who took his disciples through Samaria. Remember the women at the well and that whole story? But Philip is called to go to a place that no one would go. Then, let's keep going. You have further in chapter 8, Philip is in is, uh, verse 26. An angel of the Lord says to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that leads from Jerusalem to Gaza. It's a desert place. And he went and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch from the uh, official court of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians. And we have that whole story of Philip explaining Isaiah to an Ethiopian eunuch and baptizing him. That's this Philip in Acts 21. It's not Philip the Apostle. This is Philip the Evangelist. Different guy. That's where the confusion gets. Because you have those who will say, well this is Philip the Apostle ministering to the eunuch. Well if that's the case, then why is Philip the servant mentioned earlier in chapter 8 and earlier in chapter 6 as part of that group who went to Phoenicia. And Phoenicia is where Caesarea is. Isn't that interesting? Now, we could debate it. Now, let me just put it this way. Many doctorates have been granted in their defense of either side of this. But I like to think that this is a separate person who is called specifically as an evangelist to the people. But what's interesting to me, and this is where it kind of gets strange, and maybe not strange, but you help me understand it. We're 20 years after chapter 8 of Acts until we get to chapter 21. We've not heard about Philip the Evangelist in the ensuing 20 years. What, did he just retire? Probably not. He probably spent the entire time in that region preaching, teaching, doing what he was called to do. And now Paul comes and walks into his house as he was one of the seven and he stayed with him. Isn't that interesting? Is that why there's a church at Tyre? Is that why there's a church at Ptolemaeus? Is that why there's a church? Bingo, Tom. Bingo. I ha you have to wonder. These towns are, are within walking distance of Caesarea, of his home. Yeah. yeah and the last verse in Acts 8 says, Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel of all the towns until he reached yeah. he, but he made it his home base yeah. and that whole region was probably we don't know this is all speculation this is why we can do it in the form of a class setting you just kind of say huh, God was using this man in such an unusual way but then you add verse 9 and you kind of go Okay, now what is going on? Philip 
had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And that's all it says. Doggone it, would you please explain this one? Because we have no idea what this means. And <laughs> more doctorates have been granted about this verse than were granted about the Philip argument. <laughs> because we have no idea. Number one, how old were they? Well, it just says they're unmarried. Yeah, they're at least marriageable age, which is probably from teenage up. You have the fact that they're women, and they did what? They prophesied. Hmm. So, let's define prophecy. All right. Is prophecy predicting the future? Or is prophecy proclaiming the word? Which is it? Yeah, thank you. It can be either. It can be both. It can be one or the other. I mean, it's we don't know, but it's interesting in the consistency of Luke's record in Luke and Acts and the consistency of Paul's ministry in the early church that women in the early church were always acknowledged for their work in service to the church. They were not a second-class citizens. They were not dismissed. But they were acknowledged for their work and their gifting. Prophecy is a gift of the Spirit. Now, I'm going to so can find it here. There's my. I've got another quote here. Or did I? Of course, I didn't save it. Well, phooey. You're looking. Do I make an observation? You can, because I am trying he to find my. You're prophesying, uh, as opposed to only being foretelling the future, but also speaking a word from God. Right. They did not have the New Testament yet. That's exactly right. So they had to have a way of people telling them what they needed to know. Thank you. It was not in the Old Testament scriptures. So that's why they were there's prophesying so commonly here. Very good insight. In fact, one of the commentators that I was reading brought that up, saying because the New Testament had not been established there was a need for the expression of the word on a regular basis from those who were called by the Spirit to do it. And, and it's just amazing. Luke, I mean, he always mentions women with great respect. Yes. Over and over, I think, of uh, Lydia. Yeah. And I think, you know, he's yeah. always bringing up these godly women. Yeah. And it's just so refreshing because so many of the, the world claim that Christianity is patriarchal and it just irritates me. Yeah. The point I could not find because I failed to uh, I have it numbered here but I must have thrown that page away is from F.F. F. Bruce's commentary on Acts um, there, are, there is a legend so it's not fact but in in literature dated around two or three hundred years after this it talks about the, the daughter's of Philip 
ministering to a ripe age. So, whether we don't have nothing other than that, just one little fragment in ancient literature, but these ladies were inspired, were called, and they continued to the point that someone actually mentioned it 200 and some odd years later. That's fascinating to me. Okay, so we don't know what they were prophesying, and you know what? Put it on your 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 uh, uh, your checklist for when you get to heaven, because you probably have 150 other questions. Let's make this 151, because we don't know. It's just a fascinating little bit of information that we can't ignore, but we also cannot know fully. Verse 10. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus, and you do never want to be thrown under the Agabus. Oh. <laughs> I was waiting for two weeks for that one. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you thought you were not on a comedy show. Anyway, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea which meant he likely came from Jerusalem. Because everyone goes up to Jerusalem and comes down from Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is in Judea. Um, Agabus is known because of Acts chapter 11, verse 28. In Antioch, he prophesied that a great famine would come to the land, and it did in 46 AD. So here we are 10 years later, and Agabus is still around. He's still prophesying. He's still teaching. And it says that in verse 11 that the Holy Spirit is with him. It says, in coming to us, he took Paul's belt. It's not a belt with a buckle and you know holes in it. It's more like a sash that was used to tie. They didn't have these kinds of belts at that point. Um, but he took Paul's belt. Imagine walking up and pulling it off of him. It's like, dude, what are you doing? You know, I, you're, my pants are going to fall down. Well, they weren't wearing pants, so don't worry about that. Just the robe is flowing differently. Then bound his own feet and hands and says, the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So he is making a very physical and vivid picture of what is going to happen to Paul. That he will be arrested and bound. And when we heard this, we, notice the we here, we and the people urged Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Don't go. Doggone it. You're going to get arrested. I mean, this is the guy who predicted the famine. I mean, you know, he probably is right. So here's the problem, my friends. And this is where things get really weird in biblical scholarship. There are people who will point at how Paul was arrested in Jerusalem and say it wasn't exactly like this. So Agabus was wrong. It was. He was arrested 
But was he bound? Not necessarily. He was squared away by the Romans so the Jews wouldn't kill him. But was he bound? That You know what? If you get that specific, in, you're going to find a lot of inconsistencies with everything in life. This is a metaphor. This is a picture. Because if you want to get that specific, let's go back to Ezekiel's prophecies where he said some rather dramatic things. Like God told him to etch a picture of a city on a brick and then build um, uh, uh, siege works around it and then, dis- and then fall asleep on one side, then fall asleep on the other, and then watch it dis- be destroyed. Did it actually happen like that? Well, not exactly. He was trying, God was trying to speak to people through a picture. So here's the other question. Let's get a, you know, let's forget about the, uh, whether or not Agabus was right or not. There are a lot of people who think that Paul was wrong for ignoring the advice. One pastor even said that Paul sinned because he ignored the calling and the prophecy of people like Agabus, the calling of the people up in, um, oh, which town were we in? Which Tyre. That he was ignoring them. And he was just being a stubborn fool. And we're talking conservative scholars saying this. I'm not comfortable with that personally. But why am I not comfortable with that? Because does that somehow impinge my view of Paul? Or was Paul actually doing what he was called to do? And ignored the advice of people around him who loved him and didn't want to see him get hurt. So which is it? Get behind me, Satan. Yeah, it seems somebody else was warned not to go to Jerusalem too by his friends. Yeah, a guy named, Je- kill, guy named Jesus. Jesus. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the disciples were telling Jesus, don't go there. You're going to die. He's like, yeah, I am actually. Isn't that cool? <laughs> If you want to look at this, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, you don't hear any of them prophesying, saying that the Spirit says, do not go. Right. What the Spirit's saying is this exactly. is what's going to happen. Exactly. And there's the difference. You didn't have, I have it in my notes here. Agabus did not say it is against God's will mm-hmm. for you to go. He simply said, if you go, this is what's going to happen. Be aware of the consequences of your decision. And if you look at Paul, Paul has been very consistent in his listening to the the, uh, uh, inspiration of the Spirit, to the urgings of the Spirit. I'm going to bounce around some scriptures real quick so you don't have to follow me. You can write them down and look at them later yourself. Even in the book of Romans, He ends it by saying, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ, and by the love of the Spirit, this is uh, Romans 15, 30, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, 
and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers. That's a hint that there's something going to be happening. You have Acts chapter 20, verse 22. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained or bound by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. When Paul was forbidden to preach in certain regions by the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 16, he did not go. He did not ignore the urgings of the Holy Spirit in his life. When he was led to go to Macedonia in Acts chapter 16 verses 9 and 10, he obeyed and went. That wasn't the direction he was headed. He was told to go a different direction and he went, Yes, Lord, I will go. The Holy Spirit never forbid Paul to go to Jerusalem, only warned him what would happen, even his own predictions of it. I don't know what's going to happen to me. Uh, Acts chapter 19, verse 21. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and going to Jerusalem saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. So he has this idea. He's going to be going to Jerusalem. But then, Acts 20, 23, and 24, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction await me. But I do not account my life of any value or as precious to myself if only I may finish my course in the ministry I have received from the Lord Jesus. And we can go all the way back to the beginning of Paul's ministry. Paul has been converted. He is at Damascus with a disciple named Ananias. And the Lord said to Ananias, Go, for he, Paul, Saul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel, but I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. That's at the very beginning of it all. And if we want to go through all the suffering, Paul, you know, wrote a few of the things down in a, I think it was in Corinthians. He, he, he knows what suffering's all about. And he's not afraid of it. He says, I may go, I may die. Okay. And he says it right here in chapter 21, verse 13. What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. You know, it's interesting. I came across this quick anecdote from Charles Swindoll. He says, I remember when the Lord called me to move from the pastorate in Texas to one in California. When the day came for us to depart, and drive to California, some people came by to say a final farewell. We exchanged tears and hugs and promises to stay in touch. As Cynthia, my wife, the children, and I took our places in the car. 
Just before we pulled out of the driveway, one woman bent down, looked through Cynthia's window at the four kids, and then Cynthia, and then to me, and said, you keep saying the Lord is in this, but the Lord gets blamed for a lot of things, and He has nothing to do with this. And she held my confused gaze for a moment, then walked away. As I pulled out of the driveway, I said, well, that's a final rough memory. Cynthia didn't say anything except cry all the way down the road. The woman's words rang in my ears all the way to Abilene. Not because I doubted our decision. I had asked the Lord to grant a few other requests on behalf of the church, and He had fulfilled them in remarkable fashion. And any doubts I had were washed away from those tangible assurances that the Lord would take care of that church. The woman's words stung because I didn't want to leave with anyone thinking anything but the best, but you know what? That's unrealistic. I learned that when people lose a pastor, they often say things they later later regret. And I refuse to let those words cloud my decision. Not that the person was being mean, they were just being wrong. They felt like they were speaking in truth. But when you have a calling that's as powerful as Paul's, powerful as any decision you make, you're going to get advice that's going to tell you to do something else. Every time. I'll bet there are people who told you not to go to the mission field. Yeah? That's, that's just how people are. These people are well-meaning. They're not saying it's against God's will, like that woman did. But they're just saying, you might die. And Paul says, don't make me cry. I know it. I know I might die. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. And after these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, so they had another larger group, and brought us to the house of a very strangely spelled Mason name, Manason of Cyprus, and the ESV says a very early disciple. The King James says a very old disciple. And where is he from? Cyprus. Where was Paul's first missionary journey? Cyprus. It makes you wonder, was this man one of the early converts in Cyprus and has now moved to this area? Because the distance from Caesarea to Jerusalem is about a two-day journey, so they would need to be having a stopping place somewhere, and they find this man's home. Yes? It says in my version that he was an early disciple. Yes, early disciple is ESV. The word there for early can also mean old. Oh. He could be early and old. He could be early and old, one or the other. Yeah. In other words, he's been he's been a believer for a long time. Either that he got up very early and uh, he's known for that. <laughs> I'm gonna end with a quote from Oswald Chambers. To choose to suffer means that there's something wrong. That's an interesting statement. But then he says, to choose God's will, even if it means suffering, is a very different thing. 
no healthy saint ever chooses suffering. And I had to pause there and go, yeah, it's not like we wake up in the morning going, oh good, I'm going to suffer today. I'm going to look for it. No. No healthy saint ever chooses suffering. He chooses God's will, as Jesus did, whether it meant suffering or not. And Paul's example to us is to go into places and byways and highways where it may be dangerous. It may not be happiness. It may not be easy. But it is certainly what God wills in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together. Amazing how you can turn a travelogue into actually some fascinating details, not of just geography, but how we live and how we work and how we should listen to the calling that you have provided for us in our lives in how to serve. Whether or not it's comfortable is not the question. Whether it is obedience is truly the question. In Jesus' name, amen.